This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we're going to speak to a couple of Washington Post reporters and columnists. We'll speak to Ron Klain about how we get back to normalcy. We'll talk to Adam Kilgore about when sports might get going again. And I'm also going to tell you why all of my efforts at getting people to care about health and safety for UFC 249 and frankly for MMA in general, I'm going to stop those. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays at 3 p.m. right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation, channel 156, plus our mailbag, Show at gmail.com. Let's get this going. First, let me give you some news about the sport. Let me give you some news about myself. Let's start with the news about the sport. So UFC President Dana White spoke to TMZ yesterday and uh, also spoke to ESPN's Brett Okamoto. Of the two, he basically said the following. Number one, as I indicated on yesterday's show, they had told us what the main event was going to be for UFC 249. Um, and uh, now they had released the rest of the card. It's a pretty stacked card. We'll go over it a little bit later. He did not disclose the location where the fights were taking place. It's believed it's going to be at Tachi Palace, which is Native American territory in Lamore, California, but nobody really knows. All right. Uh, he disclosed that they're also working on, and I'm not making this up, getting an international island, a private island, so and building out infrastructure there to put fights there for the international fighters that they can't bring to the States. Uh, in terms of health and safety, you will hear what they have to say about it, and you can make up your own mind. Those are the basic details. There's, there's more that we'll get to when we get through the audio, both from his TMZ interview, Dana's, as well as the other one. Um, but okay, let me tell you where I'm at on all of this. I, 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 what I'm about to say is not entirely true, but it's mostly true, which is I don't care anymore. I don't, I just don't care anymore. I don't care anymore. Even I, I just, I mean, I care about my safety. I care about my family's safety. And if you're listening, I care about yours. I'm going to do everything I can to follow the guidelines uh, laid out by my mayor and uh, any other relevant authority in terms of um, what my responsibilities are to the public. I continue to bleach the mail when it comes to my house. I wash all the groceries. Um, I wash my hands. I don't touch my face. I don't really leave the house. I don't really do hardly anything. And that won't change. When I say I don't care, what I mean to say is I have spent the better part of two, maybe three weeks advocating for what I thought were pretty clear positions and frankly what I thought were just positions that were obvious to anybody who cared about health and safety and took those things seriously. Namely, I have been advocating for any combat sports event, not merely UFC 249, to be halted until there is some kind of relevant commission that can come up with protocol for safety. Uh, and once they do, shows can resume. My hunch is that won't be for a little while, maybe June, maybe later, because this is a serious situation, and the longer it takes for us to get on board with it, the longer it will take to solve. All right? Um, and, and once a commission comes up with some safety protocol, if a promotion can meet all of it, whatever that may end up being, then by all means, I'm okay with it. But until they've had a chance to weigh in on it, promotions self-regulating in this way, uh, to me, this is just my opinion, is not sufficient. And 
the details around everything that Dana had announced yesterday in terms of health and safety, even as I mentioned location, are just not well known. You're going to have a private island, for example. Is there even going to be a hospital on there? And if so, what will that hospital have? Also, as I've indicated, even if you have all these resources and you're testing everybody, which is fine in and of itself, there's a question about whether or not those tests should go to more needy citizens um, who could make use of it. But you know what? I don't care anymore. Because in the advocacy of these positions, I have done nothing. I've, it's my fault. I've done nothing effective. I, have, I must have been making very, very poor arguments. And I mean that sincerely. This is not some pity party. Believe me. I, have, I must have not been effective. I've had people reach out and say, oh, we really appreciate this. And this is, we agree. And to those who did, I appreciate that. But that's not the reality that we're living in. The overwhelming majority, at least from what I can tell, of the industry uh, has no use for my considerations as it relates to this issue. Certainly the UFC is not going to listen, nor did I ever expect them to. Um, regulators don't appear ready to step in. I'm being told fighters are upset because they think I'm trying to take money out of their pockets, which is the exact opposite of what we're doing. Quite literally, I am trying to put money into their pockets. That's why we had Michelle Evermore from the National Employment Law Project on. It is why I have advocated quite specifically that the fighters should not be forced to compete, and if they're the UFC, that they should be given their money. And on and on and on and on. And you know what it has resulted in? Nothing. It has resulted in... Oh, actually, that's not true. It has resulted in, aside from a handful of folks who have reached out to say that they agree and that these kind of messages are important, it has largely resulted in pissing off everybody. MMA does not want this advice. Certainly not from me. And frankly, not from anybody. Because you had yesterday the Association of Ringside Physicians come out and say exactly what I've been saying, which is that until further notice, all of these events should stop. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. There's, you cannot tell me that there is really anybody in any kind of position of power that cares. The mainstream media treats UFC like it's uh, some kind of sideshow. So the only headlines that came out of yesterday were just about the island and how funny it was. There is nobody who has, I mean, just look at my mentions. They're a constant graveyard of people. And they're all, not all, there's many, many idiots in there. It's not a question of whether or not the arguments are good, but the voluminous amount of responses that it gets that are, yes, deeply idiotic, but, but consistent, just tells you that there are fans that, in my judgment, they do not care about the health and safety of fighters. They don't, they, they take the idea that the UFC is going to just do the right thing as a given, even though they already held a show after the outbreak and after the governments and sports entities all stopped at UFC Brasilia without any even hint of COVID testing. They planned to do the exact same thing in London. I assume that that will not be the case going forward for UFC 249, but I have no idea. Here's what I do know. I am done sticking my neck out for this issue. Because if you don't care, why am I supposed to care? Somebody help me understand that. Somebody help me understand what the point is of me day in and day out trying to raise concerns about health and safety if everyone doesn't give a damn. And yes, it has occurred to me, it is so profoundly hypocritical for folks to lecture me about my views on the safety of PEDs, knowing twofold, one, USADA has been introduced to the UFC and MMA is not safer in any capacity whatsoever, which makes that argument trash. And two, now you're simply willing to overlook 
any consideration that I have raised about and association of ringside physicians and Dr. Margaret Goodman and everybody else about the, the desirability and the safety of these shows. And I'm going to get lectured about PEDs. I know that's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. So here's what I'm going to do. I will monitor from a very distant and dispassionate way, the progress that they make or what the rules are in terms of safety and protocol. They will do something. I'm sure they're going to do, uh, they're going to make an effort to not have an outbreak. It's not like the UFC wants an outbreak for crying out loud. I don't think they're, you know, those kinds of people. But they're self-regulating. No one seems to have any issue with that. They spent 15 years telling anyone who would listen, we didn't run towards, uh, from the government, we ran towards it. Uh, And now they're able to act as private actors, even if there's some sort of um, Native American, uh, potentially Native American, and we don't know, again, the situation exactly, but theorized Native American tribal commission getting involved, which are weak and toothless, to put it mildly. Uh, Nobody cares. Nobody cares about that. They don't care about COVID-19. Listen to how many people inside the industry have been telling you it's overblown, that it's a joke, that it's not real, that this is just alarmism, it's just panic buying. So why am I getting up here day after day making everyone angry at me for something that they clearly have not merely no appetite for, outright contempt. They don't want it. <laughs> they don't want it. And it's not like I've not tried. But uh, I will say, it's uh, however many attempts that I made, um, they must have been bad. They must have not been very effective. Because I couldn't convince anybody of anything I thought that was fairly straightforward. So that's on me. But uh, I'm not going to keep playing myself. I'll tell you that much. So I will talk about these fights in a way that um, is a little bit more traditional. I haven't exactly figured out how I'm going to cover them. Because I don't really know what the right answer is, to be honest with you, at this moment. So I'll see if I can figure that out. But I'm not going to get up here anymore and hector anybody about these uh, safety issues. Because nobody cares. And not only does nobody care, raising them will do nothing but damage you. So, uh, at least, uh, actually I should say, raising them in the way that I have raised them will do nothing but damage you. And uh, what's the point in that, right? I, I, after all, I don't have to fight, you know? Uh, after all, it's not me that has to worry about these considerations. So... Um, so that's that, folks. So we're going to go through this. I'm going to pay attention, as I mentioned, to the story of health and safety as best I can from a very, 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 very far distance. Because that's the distance that everyone else is keeping this um, from themselves. And I have been very unsuccessful in trying to get that changed. So if other media members want to carry the torch and waste their time trying to convince an, a, an industry that thinks that, uh, you know, this is not much worse than the flu, have at it. You are more than welcome. Uh, if other media members want to get out there and just say that they can't think, believe this is happening, have at it. You are, you are totally welcome. But just remember, these people out of this industry, they were perfectly willing to do shows without testing. They were perfectly willing to move ahead with it. And now they're telling you to trust them. And it sounds like a lot of you will. So 
enjoy. Enjoy. But don't count on me anymore to fall on the sword for this issue. Because I don't think you want it. I don't see any evidence that anybody values this input even a little bit. Small, small, small fraction of people. So, let's move on, shall we? Issue is someone else's cross to bear. And uh, let's just hope there's, God forbid, there's no outbreak. Let's just hope the fighters and personnel and other folks don't get sick. And let's just hope they don't get anybody else sick. And that's it. If they want to take the risks, up to them. This is Dave LaGreca. During these unprecedented times, we are doing our best to produce the content you expect while keeping our production staff out of harm's way. While you may not be able to call us, that doesn't mean you can't interact with us. Just hit us up on Twitter using hashtag AskBustedOpen. We look forward to talking about pro wrestling, talking about WrestleMania 36, and all of us getting back to the sport we love. Stay safe, be healthy. In the meantime, we want to once again thank you for subscribing to SiriusXM and listening to Fight Nation. Joining me now on the hotline is a Washington Post opinions contributor. He also has held a sort of important roles in our government previously in dealing with the Ebola outbreak. It's Ronald Klain. Hi, Mr. Klain. How are you? Good. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, let's sort of start with an overview, if we can. Um, all right, testing is a little bit more ubiquitous, right? I don't think it's quite ubiquitous, but it's a little bit more, let's say, widespread. Um, it's obviously hot spots in New Jersey and New York. Some states doing better than others. What is your sense about the outbreak today and how America in general at the local, state, and federal level is handling it? Well, you know, I think it's a very grim situation. I think that the disease is much more widespread than we understand. You're starting to see in places that even report low official counts of the disease, surges in patients with undiagnosed diseases in their hospitals. We're seeing uh, the number of cases rising across the country. I think that obviously a lot of the focus has been on the New York metropolitan area because it is the, the you know, most visible part of our country in some ways and also the place with the worst uh, cases. But on a per capita basis, we're seeing uh, very escalating numbers of counts in places like Washington, D.C., New Orleans, Detroit, Atlanta, you know, all throughout the country. And, uh, and we aren't ready for it. We don't really have uh, testing in place. We don't really have the kind of equipment and gear that uh, hospitals, doctors, and nurses need. And uh, so, uh, you know, the next two weeks are going to be very, very rough here. What do you make of the sense of peaking? You mentioned Washington, D.C., Mayor Bowser. It's where I live. Mayor Bowser put out a study. I know there's the IHME model. She used a different model from Penn Medicine that suggested the peak here could be as late as July. I recognize it's probably going to be uneven because America is large and spread out, and so the spread is going to dictate where we peak and, and, and when. But do you buy that peaks could happen as late as July of this year? Yeah, look, I think it's hard to know. I think that there's way too much focus on this question of a peak. I think people need to stop and pause and understand that um, half the cases occur after the peak. So the peak isn't the end. The peak isn't, oh, the day after the peak, we wake up and life goes back to normal. The peak is the midpoint at best, and probably not even the midpoint, because not only are half the cases on the other side of the peak, but rather than envisioning this disease as like some big mountain where we go up and there's a peak and we come down, we have to think about it as a series of hills. There are going to be uh, re-flare-ups of the disease. There's going to be recurrences. There are going to be kind of ups and downs with this. So I think, uh, I think there's, a, there's a lot of focus on the peak. Certainly the peak is relevant in terms of the overall surge into local hospitals, the kind of matching 
the capacity of a local region's ability to manage cases with its case count. It's important for that reason. That's why we talk about flattening the curve. But in terms of its impact on our lives, the needs to practice social distancing, the need to really get better on testing, the need to really improve the equipment and the staffing in our medical facilities. The peak is just one data point, but there's a lot of work to be done both before and after that peak. Let's talk about something you had written. There's a great article I found a few days ago, We Must Plan Now for How to Get Back to Business Later. There was this sort of choice that was offered to the American people, and I think they've backed off of it a little bit, but you are hearing sort of lingering murmurs, namely open things back up or stay locked down, and the only way back to economic progress is just to say, well, you know what? Let's just see what happens when we reopen all the businesses. And you consider that to be a bit of a false choice. Why? It is a false choice. Look, um, if we reopen too soon or without the right protections in place, all that's going to happen is people are going to get really sick and we're going to have to reclose. And we're going to have to reclose because people uh, will be uh, too many workers will be too sick to operate businesses and because people will be afraid to go back to businesses. I mean, the question is, can you reopen and can you bring back the customers? Can you reopen and can you bring back the workers? And so I think that means we have to reopen safely and in the right way. And so what does that mean? Well, first of all, the number of cases has to come down before we reopen. That's obviously clear. We have to have testing in place so we can sort out the sick from the well, who should be back on the job, who shouldn't. And then we have to have our healthcare system really ready to deal with the flare-ups. When we, things reopen, there will be local outbreaks. So we need to make sure that local systems can take care of it. We also need to think smartly about what reopening looks like. Not everything will reopen at the same time. Offices and stores may reopen before reopening large spectator events. Restaurants and bars and places like that may reopen sometime in the middle, but they're going to need new rules, new policies. Maybe they're going to take out some tables so people aren't as close together, change the way people are served in terms of trying to make it a little more safe and all these things. We need to think smart about how to do it. I talked to business leaders, and the best among them are already thinking about this. They're already ahead of the curve. They're thinking about, hey, when I reopen, what will my hours look like? How will we serve customers safely? What kind of gear and equipment will we need uh, to keep our workers and our customers safe? So this is going to be a challenge we're going to be managing all the way to the time in which we have a vaccine that's widely available and widely used. And that's a long way away. Even if science gets us the discoveries on a vaccine sooner rather than later. It's got to be tested. It's got to be made. It's got to be distributed. It's got to get into people's arms. That's going to take a while. And for that entire period, we're not need to going to be mindful about what we're doing and how we're doing it to try to avoid uh, widespread uh, spread of the disease. You know, this is highly speculative, I realize. So for to the degree this question is unfair, I apologize in advance. But someone asked me this, and so I'll ask you, which is, um, even if we're able to contain the virus, let's say in a way where New York ends up serving as some kind of anomaly, is 2020 a lost year? Well, I don't think New York is going to be an anomaly, sadly. I think that um, uh, it has spread all over the country. We're starting to really see cases escalate in places in the heartland, in places uh, all over the country. So I, I think hoping that New York is an anomaly is not is just not a realistic thing. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I, I hate to think of something as a lost year. I mean, obviously, it's going to be a year filled with tragedy. It's going to be filled with losses for sure. It's going to be a year where many of us lose friends and loved ones and neighbors and colleagues. I already have, and I'm, I'm sure many people have as well. 
but I think it's also a year where we're going to be tested to see what's, you know, the best uh, in us. And uh, when I think about all the doctors and nurses who are going to work every day, saving lives, putting themselves at risk, it's hard for me to think of that as a lost year. When I think about the people who are busy out now, right now, you know, creating electricity so you and I can have this conversation and, you know, uh, working, you know, in, in all kinds of essential jobs, delivering groceries, delivering packages, doing all the things that are being done so many of us can stay home and try to help stop the spread of the disease. It's really, really hard to think of this as a lost year. There are many acts of heroism every single day. And even in the face of all this loss and sadness and disappointment, I think um, that heroism uh, stands up and will be remembered. When you look around, obviously, as you mentioned, it's grim prospects. Still, there must be either um, institutions or uh, uh, deliberative bodies or governors or some kind of elected official who you can look around and say they're doing this right. Um, who, who might that be? Yeah, I think it's a great point. I think there are a lot of people doing a great job under tough circumstances. And let me be clear, I'm, look, I'm a Democrat, I'm a partisan Democrat, but my hat's off to the many Republicans who are also doing a great job with this. Uh, Governor Mike DeWine in Ohio, uh, Governor Larry Hogan here in Maryland where I live, uh, Governor Charlie Baker in Massachusetts are three Republican governors who I think are doing great work. Uh, Andrew Cuomo right on the front lines in New York and Phil Murphy in New Jersey. Ned Lamont in Connecticut, uh, also facing tough circumstances, three Democrats doing great work. Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, uh, you know, she's, she's had a really tough time. Detroit is a hard-hit city. She's really doing well. And Gavin Newsom has done a great job in California. They moved very quickly out there. And so far, California is a state that has largely avoided the worst of it. Now, that may change, but I think thanks to some great, strong, smart action by Governor Newsom, uh, they've, 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 uh, you know, are at the lower end of this problem right now. Um, in, in looking forward, what else can people do? This is another question I get all the time from, from my listeners, which is, okay, I can socially distance myself. I can wash my hands. I can do things as an individual actor, but in terms of like other ways to contribute, should they be calling their congressman? If so, asking for what? Are there ways to volunteer? If so, like, are there other meaningful ways of doing your societal obligation aside from cleanliness and distance? Well, first of all, I think it's a great point. And, and cleanliness and distance are big things. And I know distance really is, it's, it is a burden. I mean, uh, we feel it in our house. Every house feels the stress and strain of it. So it's not a small thing we're asking people to do. I think it's a big thing and really sticking with it, even as it gets tiresome, even as time passes, really sticking with it's important. Now, look, Beyond that, I think there's some important things that people can do to help more broadly. First of all, if you happen to be a small business person in a business uh, like, let's say, auto repair or painting or carpentry, there are a lot of businesses where fumes are involved, and those businesses have the N95 uh, respirator masks or things very similar to it. So if you have any of those supplies, and maybe your business is shut down, get those supplies to local medical providers. They need them more than you do right now. Uh, it's life or death for them. There's still a lot of those supplies out there. It'd be great if people got them to the front lines. I think there are a lot of th things that people can donate to. Uh, you know, uh, there are a lot of people feeding people right now who can't afford to eat. Uh, you know, my personal favorite cause, local here to Washington, D.C., but global, World Central Kitchen run by Chef Jose Andres. Uh, you can go to wck.org backslash chefs for America and donate there. There are a lot of other great causes 
of people who are trying to help people who are in this food situation. And I think that, you know, it's also important just to show our thanks any way we can to the healthcare workers who are on the front lines. There are a lot of uh, hospitals that have a safe way to accept donations of uh, store-bought or restaurant-provided meals for their staffs. They're working incredibly long shifts. Uh, if you can work that with your local hospitals, something like that, I think is also a great thing to do. At the very least, in a lot of cities around the country, people are taking the time each day to go to their front doors and thank the healthcare workers with cheers and applause, banging pans, songs, whatever. You know, uh, you know, it is a sad truth that in almost every epidemic in modern history, the single largest group of casualties have been among healthcare workers. They see scores of sick people every day. That's their jobs. As a result, they're most likely to contract a disease. And so they are going to pay a huge price for this fight. We all need to be mindful of that and thankful for that. Uh, two more questions for you. I appreciate your time. First, uh, you helped lead the government's response in 2014 regarding Ebola. Let's say we can fast forward to a time post-vaccine, whenever that may be, and we can begin to have a reasonably normalish society. What does the federal government need to do differently next time so we don't arrive in this kind of position again? Well, that's a great question. I think there are a bunch of things. I wrote a big piece uh, five years ago kind of laying out uh, the risk that something like this would happen and what we needed to do to be ready for it. And I think a lot of that advice still holds five years later. First of all, President Obama had set up an office in the White House for pandemic preparedness and response. President Trump abolished that office in 2018. We need to get that unit back into the White House. So we're preparing for the next one before it comes. There will be a next one, and we need to be better prepared. We need planners and organizing at the White House. Secondly, we need to have a special response agency. One thing we've seen in this is that we've been kind of struggling. Who should build emergency hospitals? Who should surge medical capacity into the areas that are most hard hit? FEMA's kind of doing it. The military's kind of doing it. We have all kinds of people kind of doing it. We should have one agency that's really great at that. I called it the Public Health Emergency uh, Management Administration, or PHEMA, FEMA with a PH, whatever you want to call it. We need special response people ready to deal with this in the future. We need to really accelerate our research into kind of universal vaccines, vaccines that are ready to treat a number of kind of uh, flus and flu-like illnesses without the kind of timeline of development that's required uh, so that we could get a vaccine uh, in place much more quickly. We need to really work on investing in frontline healthcare facilities so that they're ready for this kind of search, stockpiling more masks and gloves and respirators and ventilators so we have the capacity to deal with this. And then finally, we need to invest in something called global health security. I think what this current epidemic pandemic illustrates is that we here in the United States are only as safe as the weakest link in the global health network. If a disease breaks out in some part of China that most Americans have never heard about, a few months later, American life is paralyzed as a result of that. Now, we have a network of people around the world that are supposed to find these diseases and warn us about them early. The Trump administration cut that program 75% two years ago. We need to restore that kind of global surveillance and detection network. We need to help the poorest countries be able to respond to these viruses so that they don't spread there and ultimately get to us. We need to make sure that we're improving the way in which we find and respond to these kinds of epidemics around the world. Because if we don't do it overseas, they're going to be here just like this one is. 
Fair point. And last but not least, you know, one thing I think a lot of us are thinking about is elections. Uh, we have a presidential election coming up, but you know, there's a primary today in Wisconsin. And I have to tell you, I know every state's going to be a little bit different in terms of the uh, number of polling places and access to them, uh, whether they have mail-in ballot options or not, and absentees and whatnot. But I have to tell you, I'm looking at the scenes from Wisconsin today where people are lined up, you know, trying to be six feet apart. It doesn't seem right. I wonder what should the government do for both parties, for anyone interested in voting, primary or, or any other election regarding COVID-19? Well, first of all, there should be the option for everyone to mail in their ballot. And uh, that option uh, did exist in Wisconsin. There's been a lot of confusing court rulings about it. Uh, first, people needed a witness, and they didn't. They had time, and they didn't. Uh, what's happened here to eviscerate people's right to vote in Wisconsin is indefensible. Uh, but, but, you know, there's a simple answer to this, which is everyone in every state should have the ability to mail in their vote. And that means not just the right to mail in their vote, but uh, postage free envelopes. So it's not a, there's no economic barrier mailing out the ballots affirmatively to people. So it's easy to get one uh, and easy to return. That's the simplest thing that's easy for everyone to understand. I mean, you know, we all get mail. We all send mail. It's not that complicated. OK. But in addition to that, we do need to start to think about there are just some people who like to vote in person and who that's just what they do. And I understand that it's going to be a more of a challenge potentially in November. We don't really know where we'll be in November yet. So let's put an asterisk on that. But we also need to be thinking about how that can be conducted more safely. Distancing in line, cleaning of voting machines, protection for poll workers, all those kinds of things. We need to do work on that. But obviously, the simplest and easiest thing that be a fail safe, no matter what's going on, is just say, hey, everyone in America should get mailed a ballot. Everyone should get a postage-free envelope. They should be able to return those ballots postage-free without any kind of hassles for witnesses and whatnot. And, uh, and that's just the simplest and most straightforward way to solve this problem. If you want more of his work, you can catch him at the Washington Post, where he is an opinions contributor, Ronald Klain. Great stuff today. Really appreciate your time, and stay safe out there. Thank you. Thank you. This is your boy, Ock, from SiriusXM Fight Nation. Live sports all across the nation is on hold as we face this time of uncertainty in the world. We have concerns about family, friends, neighbors. So we're taking this time out to focus on the things that are important, like safety. One thing you can count on for sure is we're going to get through it together. Boxing and combat sports will return. And when it does, we'll be right here, right here on SiriusXM Fight Nation. In the meantime, you can join us for live sports talk with Mad Dog Sports Radio, Channel 82, and SiriusXM NFL Radio, Channel 88. All right, joining us now on the hotline is a Washington Post sports reporter. Uh, he go well. The name of the article that I found out what I thought was so smart was "How long until sports can return?" You might not like the answer. It is Adam Kilgore. Hi, Adam. How are you? Hey, Luke. I'm doing well. Hope you're uh, hanging in there. Yeah, I am. I am. I'm a, I'm a DC native. Like uh, you live in DC. You live in the district. You live in uh, Virginia or Maryland? Uh, the Maryland side, and uh, just outside uh, on, the, on the Maryland side. Yeah, I'm in Northeast, so I'm trying to figure things out day to day myself, my friend. Um, all right, yeah, well, let's yeah. let's get into it here just a little bit before we talk about the article. There's actually been some updates to this. First, I want to. I'm sure you've seen the news with Major League Baseball, and they're considering some kind of seven inning sequestered. You can't go to the mound scenario for baseball. What do you know about it, and what is your opinion about its potential? Sure. So I don't know much about it beyond what I've read. Um, you know, I mean. To I, I guess I look at it, I hope I'm not being too much of a downer, too much of a pessimist, but my reaction when I read about it um, is that for all of the, it's like 
you know, for all of the, I'll say, like, I'll say like this, like beyond the the public health and logistical barriers that are in there, which are legion, that it sounds to me like a profoundly unappealing product. Like I think we all want sports to be back. I want sports to be back desperately. Um, and, but I just think it's like you put that version of baseball on TV, no fans, these sort of strange rules about how close people can be in the dugouts and bound visits and that kind of stuff. Like, I don't think it's going to be very satisfying at all. And I think it might be like more unsettling. I don't think it's going to be a sign that things are back to normal. I think it's going to be reinforcing that things are strange and bad. Um, and so I wasn't too excited about the proposal as much as I would love to be able to flip on a baseball game in May or whenever. Um, that doesn't sound like a version of the game uh, that is exciting. It seems almost like, you know, as, as sad or more sad than nothing. Maybe when it comes, I'll have a totally different uh, opinion, but that was my, my sort of initial reaction. Yeah, and then I wonder, I, I tend to cover more of the combat sports world. I'm sure you've seen something of, uh, or maybe you hadn't, but there was uh, UFC President Dana White um, pressing forward amidst a pandemic. Very unclear. I mean, they say that health and safety will be up to the highest degree. We still don't know the safety protocol um, we don't even know where the event is going to be. It is not taking place under state athletic commission regulation, although it could be under Native American tribal athletic commissions. And there is even an a, uh, uh, island that they are talking about. Um, yeah, I don't know what to make of that. Sure. I mean, I'm all for being creative. And, you know, I think exploring how to get sports back is, um, you know, I, I love sports, so it would be great to have them back. However, um, I think a lot of these things can be really filed under the like easier said than done category to like a pretty extreme degree. You know, when it comes to like, you know, baseball or football, um, yeah, like sequestering guys for months at a time away from families, um, or you know, and if you let your if you let them have their families in the hotel, then you're talking about like asking for the medical records of like, you know, it's just it's just a lot to to consider, a lot to pull off, um, and. You know, I think the the point of you know, then thank you for mentioning the story that I wrote this week. It's like the 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 point of it is not that we won't have sports. Um, you know, there's still some hope that we could and will by late summer or early fall or even late fall. But the main point is like we just don't know. And to make assumptions or to make um, proclamations, which, which baseball hasn't done. I mean, I you know, it's sort of leaked out what some of their talks are and plans are. Um, but like, it's not you know to 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 sort of make declarations or plans like if you hear anyone say like sports will be back or sports won't be back by a certain date they're probably full of it just because we don't know even the smartest people in the world that are studying this, this disease and this virus um there's just not enough data yet to form intelligent predictions or or reliable predictions so i think that's where we are right now all right so you spoke to for this article a number of public health professionals and uh, people who understand uh, better than the rest of us, I suppose, uh, the situation that we're in related to how society has kind of shut down. What are public health professionals, from your estimation, telling you about what they would need to see for the normalcy to be there such that sports could be a function of that normalcy? Sure. It's a really good question. There's a lot of different ways to answer. I think, one, we need more uh, more data to understand the virus, which means one more testing, uh, a better understanding of of immunity. You know, we don't even know for sure now. You know, there's a lot of assumptions based on um, a little bit of data we have about this particular 
coronavirus and data that is out there about different forms of coronaviruses. Um, but like one thing we don't know a thousand percent for sure yet is like, okay, if you get the disease, are you immune? How strong is the immunity? How long does it last? Um, so that's going to be a really, you know, obviously key figure because that way, you know, you can, you know, if you've had the disease and you find out that you are immune for two years or whatever, and, and it's very strong immunity, then, you know, okay, that like really broadens a lot of different stuff across all walks of society. Um, um, the other thing that we could use is, you know, more testing because we know who, who does have the disease. Um, and, uh, you know, there's our, there is some hope, you know, a vaccine that we all know in the red isn't going to be available for a year at the very earliest. But, um, you know, there's some hope in the form of, uh, you know, drug trials that are going on that the WHO is conducting and other labs are conducting that wouldn't be a panacea like a vaccine would be. But it could be um, something that mitigates sickness and death, which, which therefore, um, you know, relieves pressure on the health system, and we could begin to get back to somewhat of a normal life. Um, you know, again, that's there's a lot of ifs there. Um, you know, we don't know if, if those are going to work or when they would work. But, it, you know, something, you know, to put in very simple terms, like if you could have more or less like Tamiflu for the coronavirus, that could be a game changer as far as what's possible. But I can't stress enough, like, we don't know, one, if that, will, if that is possible to make, and if so, when it could happen. Um, <laughs> Sorry if my daughter's the chatting in the background. Uh, the uh, and, and I think the, the main thing you heard from health officials is like you can't go backwards, right? You can't you can't have people go to stadiums or sports leagues start and then shut them down because we weren't careful enough for two reasons. Number one, you know probably the biggest tragedy the biggest tragedy that could come out of this is because we've done all these things that have been wildly disruptive to society, to the economy, et cetera, et cetera. And then we lift restrictions, and it turned out that was all for nothing because we spiked football too soon, and then, you know, cases spike again, and we're right back to where we are now. That would be terrible because, you know, you know you've done all this stuff that's been really destructive, and the benefit is as up being zero because you weren't careful enough at the very end. So I think that's that applies to sports in a huge way. Um, and the other thing is you don't want to say, okay, we can go back to sports and then shut it down because you're talking about the erosion of public trust. You're talking about the erosion of public confidence in health officials and government um, in a lot of different ways. So sports is going to, is going to be, uh, you know, sort of subject to that idea in a big way, because, uh, you know, I think it'll be one of the last things to come back. And I think there's going to be a lot of caution taken, or there should be a lot of caution taken um, before it does. Uh, so that's probably maybe a longer winded answer than we were looking for, but those are kind of the main things that I, I took away from, from chatting with uh, you know, people who really know about this stuff. The other thing that sort of stands out to me is I don't know when we're going to get sports back. We'll see. But when we're going to get sports back with people in attendance seems way far off. Is that a fair fair characterization, you think? I think so, yeah. I, I definitely do. I mean, that, it's about like fully, like full stadiums, no restrictions, you know, buy a ticket, don't have to take a test to get in the door. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think you're probably looking at a vaccine, which – if we're lucky, is um, I don't know February of next year or maybe later. Um, that's a t- wild guess. I shouldn't even say a date, um, but you know what I mean. It's 12 to 18 months from when they started working on it. So um, yeah, like that. I agree with you there a thousand percent. Like I think forcing back to normal that is not going to happen in 2020. Forcing being played in 2020, um, you know, even that I think is certainly up in the air. Um, but we'll we'll see how it how it plays out. You know, I think hope for the best, but understand that some pretty some pretty bad outcomes are possible. Is there any sense that you have in terms of how destructive this could be 
Like I asked, um, I've been asking various people, and again, this is so speculative, it's just hard to know, but I mean, I just wonder where your head's at on the idea that like the coronavirus, when it eventually passes, it's going to take away something from everything it touches. Now, not everything, it'll take away something. I wonder what it'll take from sports. Have you given any consideration to that? What, is, it, is that our, our ability to meet like we did previously? Is it that some organizations won't make it? What is it? I think it's a great question. Um, I, you know, I have thought about it. I don't know if I have good answers. Some, some theories. I mean, I think it's going to change. Uh, it's going to change, like, you know, it, it could change who owns these teams. You know, I'd want to find out, like, whose books are secure and whose aren't. Because if you're losing, you know, these owners are going to have portfolios that are, um, you know, have really suffered from the economic side of the of the effects of the coronavirus. Um, you know, if and if they, it's possible they're going to need quick capital. You know, get is, is to sell their sports team. So I think that's one thing that'll that'll change off the bat. Um, yeah, I know. I think it's a great question. I have thought about it. Other than that, I don't think that's like the smartest answer I just gave. But it's one thing that comes off my head. And I'm, I'm definitely thinking more about it and trying to trying to get a better answer. I don't know if I have it yet. The uh, the Korean baseball league, as I understand it, is probably the closest we have to resuming things. Um, what do you know about them? Like, is there anyone out there? Is it them or anyone else that's doing the right thing in terms of um, finding some kind of way back? Yeah, I mean, I think the Korean baseball league has has the best uh, so far, mainly because the Korean uh, government did the best job of containing it to begin with. You know, I mean, so I think we're, we're sort of um, it's a little bit of apples and oranges, just because this the public health crisis they had because of the preparations they took is a lot different than uh, what we have in America. So it's, it's hard to sort of uh, say, like, like apply what they've done. But, yeah, I, I don't – they're definitely the furthest along. But I think, with, you know, the, the analog that I think you worry about we, – we, we have to worry about the most is what happened in Japan, where they said, okay, we're going to start baseball leagues. They had no fans. They had only players. Uh, society started to relax some restrictions. Uh, and they all of a sudden went from a delayed opening day with a date. They were all ready to go. And now it's they have just suspended indefinitely again. So um, I think the lesson, you know, we're probably closer to Japan than we are to Korea as far as broader society. So um, if anything, I think the lesson we want to take is don't jump the gun because uh, it's going to it's going to make things worse. Yeah. Is there any sense of like, okay, it'd be bad PR if something like that happened, but. Is there any like legal consequence to there being a potential outbreak if a league tries to get back at it too quickly? Yeah, that's pr- pr- over my head. I haven't I haven't talked to many people about that. I I guess it's possible. I mean, liability seems to be a part of every big decision that a corporation makes. So um, I would imagine that'd be considered, but I don't have a good answer for you there. Yeah. Uh, if you want to read more of the article, it's really great, and I think it's I think it's an important truth that people need to, or at least a perspective certainly that folks need to entertain. It's called "How Long Until Sports Can Return." You might not like the answer. We'll tweet it out at the station account. It's Adam Kilgore from the Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time, Adam. All right. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.